0: dear listeners, this is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, your host. Uh, in the studio, we have the indomitable Jack Butler, uh, the producer of the show. and We've we got to at some point come up with a label for him. And um, and our guest today is my friend, f- currently f- resident fellow... Scholar. scholar. Scholar, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Ken Pollock of the American Enterprise Institute, a formerly of the Brookings Institution. That's when I first started to follow your stuff. And um, one of our resident Iran scholars. Do you ever get into, like, serious, nerdy trivia contests with, like, Michael Rubin about any of this
1: kind of stuff? <laughs> uh, no, I think... That's a fruitless. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in ramming my head against walls. Then again, I have tried on numerous occasions to reach Rapprochement with Iran, so perhaps I am just that foolish. Perhaps, perhaps. maybe a trivia fight with with Michael would be a, a a more fruitful endeavor.
0: It would be interesting to have like a um, field of expertise Jeopardy co- style contest here, um, just to see how obscure people could get with things. Um, so I want to have you on simply for. I'll just admit it, purely lazy pundit reasons is that I feel like I need to catch up on what the hell is going on with this Iran stuff. And I figured rather than call you on the phone, I would get double duty dollars (laughs) and just put you on the podcast and we could talk about it. So what the hell is going on?
1: Okay, well, the... I don't want to back up too much, right? Because it's Iran. We could back up 2,500 years to Cyrus the Great talking about obscure. Let's not do that. Uh,
0: There there are listeners who would like you to do that, but but it's okay. We can fast forward.
1: For the moment, let's start with some more recent history. Under the Obama administration, the United States and the Germans, the British, the Russians, the Chinese reach an agreement with Iran about its nuclear program. Everyone in the world was very concerned about its nuclear program. The deal that Obama reached, which is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was effectively that the Iranians put their nuclear program on ice for 10, 15 years in some ways, permanently in theory, in other ways. And in return, they would get a lifting of both international sanctions and American sanctions. Now, what's important to understand is, like most deals, nobody was happy. Mm -hmm. with it. Uh, The Obama administration thought it was a a reasonably good deal. Almost no one else did. I will say that I was in favor of the deal, but my my feeling about the deal was that it was the minimum that we needed. It was not a great deal, but it was good enough. Mm -hmm. But that that 10 to 15 year window I mentioned was a really important aspect of it, right? For the Obama administration, they f- their feeling was, well, we're going to have a rapprochement with Iran. And so 10 to 15 years is really all we need because that 10 to 15 years will cover us through the rapprochement. 10, 15 years from now, Iran will be a completely different country. We won't have to worry about the nuclear deal. Uh, my own perspective, and I think that of a lot of other people who were at least cautiously supportive of the deal, was different, which is 10 to 15 years is a nice window that we can use to put in place a more permanent deal. And of course, there were lots of other people who felt, certainly folks in Washington, felt like this is a terrible idea. 10 to 15 years ain't going to be enough. Uh, the Iranians should just go right back to what they were doing at the end of it. Um, and then there were plenty of people who just wanted the end of the regime and felt right. like if you get rid of the sanctions, you're not going to get rid of the regime.
0: Right. That- so so just, just to clarify, for, so for people like me, who I was opposed to it, I wasn't incensed by my opposition to it, like some people were. But um, it seemed to me that what the deal did was say, okay, you're going to pause if they comply, right? Because there was always the work concern that they would still do stuff in secret. And then we, would, we were basically guaranteeing them the ability to have a nuclear program after 15 years. So rather than the keeping them in doubt about whether or not we were going to keep screwing with them, with Stuxnet type stuff or whatever. We were like, okay, here's your runway. It's longer than you would otherwise like. And at the end of the runway, you get your nuclear bombs. And that was my objection to it.
1: And that's a, that was a very reasonable position. Right? And again, my perspective was you may very well have been right, mm-hmm. but without that long runway, as you described it, they would have it sooner. Have it, exactly. Right. And it gave us that long runway to, to, to deal with the problem. Okay. So that's the American side. And that is important. Every aspect of that's important. I want to come back to it in sure. a minute. On the Iranian side, though, it was also a tough deal. Right. The Iranians were just as divided about the deal as we were. You had a group of I'm going to call them pragmatists. We call them all kinds of different Mm -hmm. things, but it's really their president, Hassan Rouhani, and their foreign minister, Javad Zarif, and a bunch of people around him. All of whom felt that Iran needed to get the albatross of the United States and its sanctions off Iran's neck to allow its economy to revive and that that would fix Iran's most basic problems. The people would be happy that would allow the regime to stay in power. They, of course, were opposed by a group that we typically call the hardliners, and it's made up of a lot of different people, but these guys are hardcore, right? They hate the United States. They believe in Iran's expansion for a whole variety of reasons, and they hated the deal. And what they said at the time was, A, terrible deal for us. We shouldn't be putting our nuclear program on hold at all. We have every right to have it. The sanctions relief we're going to get really isn't very significant. And most importantly, what they consistently said was, and the Americans will never honor the agreement. They will cheat. They will break the deal. Right? The Iranians went along. They signed it. Fast forward uh, two years. Donald Trump comes into office and basically within a year, he pulls the United States out. And that's important on the Iranian side because that absolutely confirms the hardliners in their position. right? And to basically everybody in Iran, starting with the only guy who matters, Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, what they predicted is exactly what happened. The United States reneges on the deal, pulls out, but everybody else expects Iran to abide by it. All right. On our side, the... Trump administration is also divided. Lots of people want different things. Um, our old colleague John Bolton does seem very much to want real regime change uh, in Iran. Trump seems very focused on getting a better nuclear deal, whatever that would mean. Pompeo somewhere in between. But nevertheless, that's where they are. And they all agreed on this this strategy of maximum Economic pressure on Iran. And every part of that statement is important. The maximum part is important. Under Obama, there was pressure, but not this much. It's economic because and that's where they want to keep it focused. So they really haven't done very much against Iran in the region. Right? And point to fact, in the Middle East, the Trump administration has mostly given the Iranians a free hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, President Trump himself, when he was asked about, you know, pulling the troops out of Syria, and one of the reporters said to him, you know, what about the Iranians? He said the Iranians can do what they like Mm -hmm. in Syria, which, you know, drove a lot of people in Washington and pretty much everybody in the Middle East absolutely crazy. Right, so they've put this tremendous pressure on Iran, and it has been a lot more pressure than the Iranians could deal with. Right, so the Iranians are hurting; their economy is in very tough shape.
0: Inflation is like forty percent. Exactly, a, lot, like a third. The rial has
1: lost yeah. about sixty percent of its value against the dollar. Yeah, a third of the population is living in absolute poverty. People are very unhappy about it. It is hurting the government. Now, the government's strategy. Iran's strategy to deal with this was they were just going to wait Trump out. And I think that is still their strategy. But it's so uncomfortable that they're beginning to worry about it. And so they are looking at alternatives. And they've got two possible alternatives. One is they actually sit down and talk with Trump. And you're hearing that from that group of pragmatists. So Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, he keeps talking about having negotiations with Trump. And at some level, he may even mean it. From my own perspective, my guess is that at least now, if we had any negotiations with the Iranians, it would be a a time buying exercise, right? They still are hoping that Trump is going to get thrown out of office in 2020 when he does All the Democratic candidates have pledged to rejoin Mm -hmm. the nuclear deal, right? and they're hoping that even if he somehow wins, it'll be a different Trump. Maybe he'll have a different Congress. He'll be forced to do it. So they're kind of living in hope, and they might start negotiations. But as I said, until 2020, my guess is that they would just be looking to see if they can relieve some of the pressure, right? They saw what happened with North Korea. Trump wants maximum pressure on North Korea. Then Kim Jong-un sits down with him. And all of a sudden, you know, Trump changes his tune completely. So I think the Iranians are, have a reasonable expectation that they might get away with the same thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, the hardliners clearly want to try to turn up the heat on us, right? They're not interested in a deal. Again, they're, you know, they're feeling, and you've heard uh, Ayatollah Khamenei himself say this, there's no point in talking with the Americans. We cannot trust any deal the Americans will agree to because we have seen the Americans will agree to a deal with us and then break it and walk away. So there's no point. So what they'd like to do is turn up the heat and we're seeing that play out too right? Someone has attacked four tankers off the coast of the UAE. Right. Uh, the Houthis, who are Iran's allies in Yemen, have been mounting attacks on Saudi oil pipelines, right? There is talk about conversations with Iraqi militias about maybe under what conditions they might attack American troops in Iraq. So clearly, Iran's hardliners are thinking about going in a different direction, mostly waiting it out still, but trying to put some heat on us. And that's where the Trump administration comes back into this, because they're seeing the reaction from the Iranians and to some extent overreacting to it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we needed to deploy a carrier and bombers to the Gulf. The administration decided to do so to kind of reinforce to the Iranians, don't try anything stupid. And let's face facts, the Iranians are fully capable. Of doing stuff like we've seen them do that in the past. And sometimes when they're allowing their revolutionary guards to do their own thing, we've seen their revolutionary guards do some really aggressive things against us, against the British, against the Saudis, things that the government in Tehran didn't seem to necessarily approve, Mm -hmm. but that could easily have started a shooting war. Mm -hmm. So, again, in the Iraq
0: war, they killed a lot of Americans. uh,
1: Absolutely. Uh, I believe the Pentagon said recently six. 600 american deaths mm-hmm. can be directly attributed to iranian action mm-hmm. during the iraq war. So and you know let's add on to that cobar towers which they blew up in in 1996 where they killed 19 americans and wounded almost 400 others the marine barracks blast in right. beirut back in 1983 was another one that they were ultimately responsible for. So yeah they absolutely have done all kinds of bad things to americans and The deployment of forces was an effort, I think, really just to reinforce to the Iranians, don't do anything stupid. I think they got the message. So one could make an argument that maybe it was necessary. I said, I think, probably not, probably overreaction. But again, mox next. But what we're seeing is everyone all spun up. Right. Because everyone assumes that Donald Trump wants to start a war with Iran. Again, everything that I'm seeing from him and I'm not a fan of his, but everything I'm seeing from him indicates that he doesn't want to do so. But it's just this reputational thing. Right. And let's also add on to that. There are a lot of people in the world who are just very angry at the Trump administration for a lot of different things, including pulling the U.S. out of the Iranian nuclear deal. Right. And this becomes an opportunity to vent at the Trump administration to try to, you know, point out all of the problems that they have created by their actions. Um, and I think there also is some genuine fear and uncertainty about what Trump may actually do or may do inadvertently or without thinking or that John Bolton might maneuver him into. So there's a certain amount of, of fear that I think is warranted, and I think that there's a certain amount of exaggeration and even hysteria going on.
0: Okay, lots of people apart there. I, I agree with you on the danger of miscalculation, right? It's sort of like a, that scene from... Uh, Hunt for Red October where Fred Thompson says,
1: this business will get out of control. It'll get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through.
0: Keeps coming to mind. So a few clarifying things. One, and this goes back at least to Iran-Contra. When I hear people, this, I don't mean this as a criticism, I mean this is a point of clarification. Uh, when I hear people talk about Iranian moderates and hardliners or pragmatists and hardliners, sometimes in American in American domestic fights about foreign policy this idea that there are Iranian moderates within the regime gets sort of transformed into this insinuation maybe not maybe not spelled out that these are the forces of this alleged rapprochement that's coming and that they're in fact jeffersonian democrats nice people who want Iran to be a normal country and all of the rest and then the reality is it's 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 kind of it's 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 the difference between sort of Bismarckians and and uh, jihadists, right? I mean, the, the the hardliners are theocratic hardliners, right? And the quote unquote moderates—they're the ones who, they still want a nuclear program, right? They still are interested. All in, other
1: things being equal, I think absolutely they hegemon want
0: to be a regional hegemon. They don't necessarily want to become Denmark, right? So, are there people within the regime itself that you think? are actually interested in the rapprochement that you're talking about to become a normal country that doesn't have designs on being the regional hegemon and all the rest?
1: First, it's a great point. And let me start by agreeing with you that, you know, one of the problems I think that we often have is that we use these terms that mean one thing in the context of another country, but we take them in terms of our own context. So you're right. We're talking about moderates, pragmatist, whatever word you want to use, in an Iranian context. Right.
0: Like moderates in the Soviet Union were a very different creature exactly. than the moderates in America.
1: right. right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I went through the same thing. I can remember during the, the Persian Gulf War back in 1990-91, where, you know, we used to use the term Iraq's elite Republican Guard, right? right? And that was true. Within the context of the Iraqi military, their Republican Guard was elite. But people back here saw that word and assumed that these guys were the Waffen SS. Right, right, right. And it's only that they were marginally... Less garbage mm-hmm. than the rest of the army, mm-hmm. right? And and that was completely lost. And so the same thing is going on here. So you're absolutely right, Jenna. That it's moderate, it's pragmatic within this Iranian context. Are there some folks within the Iranian regime system government? Yeah, I mean there certainly are people we've used to refer to as reformists who, you know, as best we can tell, and I have had conversations with a number of these people, they're really not interested in almost anything beyond Iran's borders except good relations, mm-hmm. right? But those people have been eviscerated, mm-hmm. right? They are not politically relevant. They they seem to represent a, ver- a fairly significant. Portion of the Iranian population, we can't tell that much, right? But politically, they are not relevant. And you're right that the 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 battle within the Iranian regime right now is between people like Rouhani and Zarif. Rouhani, in particular, who's been a pillar of this regime, just a very pragmatic Bismarckian, seems fine. Yeah, Metternich, whoever you want to talk about, these are guys who are thinking about we got to get our own house in order. Right. And then, yes, we can play this wider role on the regional stage, as opposed to the guys who are just absolutely committed to exporting the revolution, to being the hegemon of the region, to driving the American out, Americans out of the region for ideological reasons, theological reasons, right. emotional reasons. Right. But they are way off the end of the spectrum.
0: Right. Trotsky wanted to export revolution all around the world. Stalin wanted to make basically mother Russia as powerful as possible and work within its own socialism within its own borders, as he put it, which really was just sort of consolidating power. You don't need messianic Shia Islam to want Iran to be the 800-pound gorilla of the region and exert its influence.
1: That's right. right. And you know, what you find in most conversations, especially with Iranian officials, there is often just this kind of innate belief that Iran is the natural hegemon, Right. Of the region. Right. I mean, as, as they will sometimes point out, Iran has been right. the hegemon of the region for most of those 2,500 years right. that we talked about. And they're often contemptuous of the Arabs, something that drives many Arabs absolutely up a wall. They, they often give the impression that they don't believe the Arabs are capable of ruling themselves and they ought by rights to rule them because otherwise they'll hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that seems very much implicit. Uh, my old friend Graham Fuller once wrote a wonderful book about the cultural roots of Iranian foreign policy. It was called The Center of the Universe because mm-hmm. right? that is one Iranian conception right. of themselves.
0: So just to stay on this for a second, then I want to go back to the domestic politics stuff for a bit. But I can't remember where I was... Reading maybe it was an Atlantic piece a long time ago. I wrote a couple of columns along this stuff. There were a lot of people on the right who, and there still are a lot of people on the right who fundamentally believe Islam is the problem. Right, Wh- whatever problem we're discussing, the root of it is Islam. And then, but when you actually look around the world, I mean, there are a lot of Islamic countries that have problems, but the the they're not the problems that people are talking about. And a lot of the problems that we talk about in the Middle East. Maybe it's has more to do i 'm not trying to make some sort of you know the dirty arabs argument, but the but Arab culture may be the bigger problem than Muslim culture right and there's an authoritarian strain in a lot of arab cultures there are a lot of authoritarian strains in non arab cultures again this is i don 't want to overgeneralize, but the there, one of my great peeves and it's a long theme of this podcast is i 'm against monocausal explanations of anything. And so when people say, oh, it's just Islam, it's like, well, you know, Indonesia is different, you know. Um, Exactly. And, you know, yeah, Pakistan has issues, but they're not the same issues that Egypt has or that Saudi Arabia
1: has. And And India is the second largest Muslim country in the world. And India's Muslims seem to do fine with democracy. Right. So I I tend to agree with you. That I think that Islam is one of the world's great religions. And there is enough in the Quran and the Hadiths that you can choose whatever you want to to justify whatever arguments you want to make. Right. right? That's not really the issue. And I also think that you're absolutely right that it is a set of deeper problems. I mean, as you're aware, I just published a book um, called Armies of Sand, which talks about- Which I should have plugged at the beginning. Yeah, okay. My apologies. Well, right. Armies of Sand, past, <laughs> present, and future of Our military effectiveness. You can get it on Amazon and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, my ultimate conclusion was that it is these elements of Arab society that have really been the hindrance to Arab militaries over the last 70 years. And that, yeah, cultural patterns are the biggest set of problems there, right? And you've had a lot of other people... Tribal and kin relationships play out differently. To some extent. It's more about how the educational process, formal, informal, Uh child-rearing, formal education inculcates people to think about their relationships within hierarchy, how they think about knowledge, whether knowledge is something that everyone can create or you simply ingest it, Mm -hmm. right? Whether uh, lower rungs in a hierarchy are supposed to be active or passive, so you have bottom up versus (laughs) top down hierarchies, things Uh like that, right? Because different societies organize their hierarchies very, very differently. But in addition to the work that I've done on the military side, you know, you've had people, particularly the UN's Arab Human Development Report, right? Which for, at this point in time... Uh, 17 years, has written a number of different volumes making the same argument about how, again, these same problematic patterns of behavior derived from the Arab culture and that also infuse the educational system have also been holding back the Arab world economically. Right. right, And I think that, you know, this is something a lot of Arabs increasingly are coming to grips with, and you're seeing the reformers, right? And, you know, some of these guys have big problems, right? You know, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, uh, right? There are some big negatives there, but one of the things that you have to say about him is he recognizes that Saudi Arabia desperately needs reform. And one of the things he has been trying to do is to reform their entire educational system so that you, you move past these, you know, ultimately culturally sourced problems. Right that have been holding them back.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, When the assassination, what was his name? I feel terrible not having another tip of my... Jamal name. Khashoggi? G- the, yeah, the Khashoggi assassination in Turkey. An enormous number of people, sort of the conventional wisdom on the morning Joe kind of circuit was that this proves he's not a reformer. And the thing is, you know, look, uh, I thought the assassination was awful. I thought it was incredibly stupid. It's obviously evil. But... I'm pretty sure Ataturk probably had someone killed and he was a reformer, you know, and I'm not a big fan of Bismarck, but he probably did some terrible things too. When you have cultures that have these, these and I, I'm not saying this as a defense of, of, you know, bin Sultan, I'm just saying that in a context where there's no democratic tradition, there's deeply entrenched cultural problems. The idea that you can only be a reformer if you adhere to the norms of the West as you try to do your reforms, just strikes me as kind of naive about how the rest of the world works. There's often, you know, uh, you know I don't want to say you got to break some eggs to make an omelet, because as Orwell would say, where's the omelet? But um, uh, there is a sense in which we think that everybody has to play by the, you know, the Queensberry rules about these kinds of things. And that's not how radical change and dysfunctional cultures necessarily happen. Anyway, back to the American context. There are people. I'm probably one of them, but at the margins of it, who get a distinct whiff of the Ben Rhodes echo chamber stuff going on in some of this. That this talk about how Trump wants a war, that he's pushing for war. Some of it is sort of just replaying, you know, generals or keyboard generals replaying the last war with Iraq, and don't trust the government about these things, and blah 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 blah. But. Um, it does seem like there was a ready-made plan to spin this as obvious proof that we need to get back in the deal right away. Does that seem right to you?
1: Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think it is accurate, right? And let's, let's put it into the wider political context. You, know, you and I both live in Washington. Um, and you know the, the problem is that this place is just suffused mm-hmm. with this complete polarization, right? Where both sides just regard the other side as evil. Anything they do is has to be depicted as the worst possible thing in the world. Uh, in this case, as you point out, Jonah, this was kind of a core issue of Obama's, right? The, the Iran nuclear deal was one of Obama's few signature foreign policy achievements, mm-hmm. right? That they could really hang their hat on. Um, and, you know, the way that I can remember some of them describing it was, look, when we took office, And everybody was complaining about the the problems in the Middle East. Everybody said the biggest problem in the Middle East was Iran's nuclear program. Well, we solved that, Mm -hmm. right, with the Iran nuclear deal. That's done. Off your plate. What are you complaining to us about? We did a great job in the Middle East.
0: At best for 15 years, though.
1: (laughs) They, they of course, didn't see it that way. This was their their sentiment, right? And then, of course, Trump comes in, tears that up. And let's be honest. I think a big part of why Trump tore it up was because it was considered one of Obama's signature achievements, right? Like the Paris deal. Exactly. This was a guy who was bound and determined to, you know, Obamacare. Right. To try to destroy Obama's complete legacy. That's certainly how right. uh, the you know, Obama supporters and Democratic Party saw it. Right. And so here is is Trump uh, taking action that does kind of sort of look like the run up to a new war. And the rhetoric is, as usual, off the charts um, with Trump. And it's mostly expressed through Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was a combination of, again, genuine fear on certain people's parts, coupled with political opportunity that, you know, yeah, we can paint this guy as this warmonger and we can, you know, we can hammer him. For doing this thing, which was so deleterious to our political position, right? So, you know, as always in Washington, the strategic—about the best you can say is the strategic gets all mixed up with the domestic politics. But you know, I feel like increasingly, it's just that the domestic politics run roughshod right. over the strat- over the strategic interests.
0: So, I have to admit, I'm in- I'm increasingly fascinated by John Bolton, who I've known for years. You've known for years. He used to be a colleague here. I used to see him. I have some dear friends that I see far less often than I used to see him in the Fox green room. <laughs> and um, I used to tell him, are you here to pick up your mail? And um, and there was this big piece in The New Yorker recently about Bolton. And I can't remember the guy who wrote it. And he makes the case that Pompeo is basically attuned to being not America's and – I'm being – simplistic about this because I'm not a Pompeo basher by any stretch, but that Pompeo is politically attuned to being essentially Trump's secretary of state, not necessarily America's secretary, but Trump's secretary of state. His rhetoric is attuned to all of that. But Bolton's got a plan, right? Bolton's got an agenda. I remember we talked about it on this podcast and at the time people were, thought I was being uh, excessive about it. But when Bolton was on the Sunday shows talking about the, the first Korea thing. He kept saying, we really see Libya as the model for <laughs> for all of this. And, and he did it with such a straight face. And the thing is, is that anybody who understands what happened in Libya has to understand that the North Koreans are going to interpret that as, we're going to get concessions out of you, and then we're going to let your regime go, you know, belly up. And and it seemed like a poison pill at the time. And then there was this piece, I guess Eli Lake wrote a piece recently about how Bolton deliberately wrote that 5,000 troops to Colombia thing in order to frighten Venezuela and the and Maduro regime and all that. First of all, do you think Bolton survives? Do you think his agenda is achievable? And do you think that Pompeo is that, that characterization of Pompeo is fair?
1: Sure. A bunch of different things. And, and first, I want to I start by saying, Jonah, that, you know, again, we live in Washington. We talk to people in the government all the time, but we're ultimately reading tea leaves, too. Sure. Right. And none of us actually knows what gets said when Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump, maybe with John Bolton in the room, maybe without him, or maybe Trump just with Bolton, what, what they say to each other. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. That said, everything that I hear from people does more or less accord with that view, that Pompeo does see himself as you know, the only way to be effective is to more or less channel Trump. Right. Right. And what I saw with Iran in particular was that, you know, he would he would be with Trump rhetorically until the very last moments mm-hmm. and then suddenly try to swerve at the last minute and pull Trump with him right? So in particular, the first time around when they announced the waivers on some of the sanctions to allow eight different countries to buy Iranian oil, nobody knew that was happening until the very last minute, including the rest of the U.S. government, right? Up until basically the week beforehand, Pompeo had been right in lockstep with Trump, no waivers, no waivers, no waivers. And then at the last minute, eight waivers, Mm. right? And that did seem to be very much along those lines. So I think that that's a pretty accurate assessment. And look, Given what happened to Rex Tillerson and given what happened to H.R. McMaster, if you want to survive in that job, that seems to be probably the smartest way to do it, right? If that's your goal is to survive in that job, that's probably the right way to do it. Again, you know, not having spoken to John in a while, um, but knowing him in the past, I suspect that you were right. It's always been my sense of John Bolton that, yes, he has a very definite plan. It is not Donald Trump's plan. It is far more aggressive, far more ambitious. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of surprised he, sur- he survived as long as he has. Yeah. Um, now, he clearly is kind of tacked in Trump's direction on something like North Korea. I also think that you're right that on a lot of these different issues, what it, it seems to me that he's doing is trying to get Trump a little pregnant right. on regime change in Iran. And North Korea and and some of these other places. Uh, So far, that hasn't happened. But, you know, go back to something that you and I were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. You know, you get into these circumstances with an Iran or with a Venezuela, you're not ever sure what's going to happen. And if they do something stupid, right, that could furnish an opportunity for someone if, you know, if if John does want to do this, if Bolton does want regime change or a war with Iran, he can go in and say, look what the Iranians just did. Right. And the fact that, you know, maybe an outside observer would look at it and say, well, you kind of provoked them um, and they're mostly reacting defensively. That may not matter. Right. Mm -hmm. What may matter is simply that Bolton can say to Trump, the Iranians did this. It is crossing a red line. You got to show them that you mean business and we could be off to the races. You know, That's a fear that I think a lot of people have out there. And I don't think that that's a false one. I think that, you know, once you get into these circumstances where you've got two countries that are, you know, kind of glaring at each other, each other and move in military forces around. And again, especially a regime like the Iranians, where we have seen Revolutionary Guard units take action that, as best we understand, it was completely unauthorized mm-hmm. and incredibly provocative. You know, that's a little bit like building a big pile of kindling and then, you know, flicking matches at it. Right.
0: So earlier you said when you were dividing up the agendas of people, you said that Trump is eager to get a better deal. Now, I understand the maximum pressure thing is presumably in furtherance of that, that goal. Have you seen any other evidence that Trump is actually dedicating bandwidth to this desire to get a better deal? Um, you know, because with North Korea, with Venezuela, every now and then he floats these ideas about meeting with people and he gets on the phone with people. You don't get the sense that he's doing much of that vis-a-vis Iran.
1: Right. Uh, look, he certainly has done some of it, right? He's done some tweets. He's made some statements that have indicated an interest in having this negotiation with right. them, and he has reiterated. And again, I can't prove this, Jonah. It's just my sense from listening to the guy that that's really what he wants is yep. he wants to be able to go before the American people and say, I got a better deal right. from the Iranians than Barack Obama, right, right? which seems to be what what's really motivating him. Um, but you know, one of my problems with the way that they're going about doing this is that he also seems absolutely fixated on the idea that he is going to put maximum economic pressure and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Right? And I see that as incredibly problematic because while we are doing a lot of damage to the Iranian economy and they are certainly hurting – You know, I gotta tell you, I don't think that the odds are terrific that this is gonna move the Iranians to actually wanna have negotiations, real negotiations, let alone make even deeper. Uh, concessions to the United States than they did the first time around because of Iran's domestic politics, right? right? Exactly the way they described it. The hardliners are in charge. You know, we've got Ayatollah Khamenei increasingly coming out and criticizing Rouhani for how he handled the original nuclear deal, right? There's nothing that suggests that this pressure alone is going to be enough. Mm-hmm. to actually move the Iranians and you know this is again one of the problems with the Iranians is that they are a regime that is willing to cut off its nose despite its face.
0: Yeah, cuz you can make it totally make again the I I I am not a fan of foreign policy realism as as it's usually defined or discussed cuz in Washington I often define realism as the ideological position of the person who lost the argument right they the, they always say you guys are ideologues because they when they win right and you're doing something crazy because you have this ideological agenda I'm a realist I just want to do why and you did X and then when they get in because you can look the 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 ideological constructs that allowed you to believe that 15 years is more than enough time for Iran to become a normal country and have a rope rapprochement it may be right right but that is as much an ideological leap of faith as the only way to defeat Iran is with regime change. They're all ideological positions. I'm someone who defends ideology as just simply a set of principles and ideas that you believe to be true and that you act on them. Otherwise, you're stuck with what William James called a bloom and buzz and confusion, right? And simply saying, well, I'm the realist, it's sort of stealing uh, authority and legitimacy on the cheap, when in reality, you're making a bunch of assumptions too about how the world works. And anyway, but you could see how if the Iranian regime were dominated by pragmatists who could look through the fishbowl of American politics accurately, that's one of the big problems is it's very hard to figure out from abroad what's going on here because it is kind of crazy. You look at the renegotiated NAFTA, which is basically a new coat of paint on the same deal, right? Or you look at the way we dealt with with North Korea. If the Iranians did what the what the Saudis and the Israelis and all these other guys did, and put giant portraits of of Donald Trump on the sit all over the cityscape of Tehran, and said, "You are the world's greatest negotiator," blah 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 blah, and they just changed some punctuation from the Obama deal, I think Trump would go for it because he likes the ribbon cutting, right? He likes the scenery. I- he doesn't care about the details but they can't read it that way. And and I think that Bolton is very determined to keep them from reading it that way. Mm-hmm. But so let's, let's switch gears a little bit to the regime change question. I I actually am a believer in the concept of regime change. I just, and I'm chastened by my experience with the Iraq war and all that. But to me, it's a, it's regime change is good when it's to a better regime and when the cost-benefit analysis works, right? If you could persuade me that we could declare war on north north korea and fire a single shot and spend a single dollar to get rid of the kim regime i do it in a heartbeat mm-hmm. but the problem is, is there's a cost benefit analysis that is far great out of whack with with right. the possibility of it right so what do you think are the prospect the the plausible prospects for regime change in iran how would it work were you in favor of supporting the the uprising um, on Obama's watch, because man, that, that that seemed like an opportunity. That because Obama was going for the brass ring of a deal, he decided he didn't want to scu- risk scuttling all of
1: that. Yeah, so this is why I wanted to come on the podcast with okay. you, John, because you, you, there are just so many great things there. And do me a favor, I actually want to go back to your first kind of more philosophical point because sure. I think that it is an important one. And yeah, I mean, my you're allowed to do whatever you want on this podcast. So. Outstanding, <laughs> it's the best kind of pet podcast of all. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I might, I'll, I'll put it slightly differently, which is that. I think the people who call themselves realists are ultimately pessimists. Mm-hmm. That's really what they are, right? They don't see any change as possible. And people that they brand as ideologues are people who have any degree of optimism, right? It can be wild-eyed, you know, unjustified, ignorant, naive optimism. It can be just even very modest optimism that things can change. My own experience, you know, I started life uh, as, a, as an intelligence analyst mm-hmm. on the Middle East. Um, that teaches you pessimism, mm-hmm. right? I then moved over and I served two tours at the White House on the NSC staff. That teaches you optimism, Mm -hmm. right? Because you've got to be able to do things, right? You know, when you're at the White House, you have to be able to affect change and you have to be realistic about it. So that's the degree of pessimism that needs to come in. But if if you do not allow for any optimism, your pessimism is paralyzing. Right. Which is, of course, a set of decisions in and of itself. Right. It becomes full self-fulfilling.
0: Right. Right. To choose not to act as to choose to act.
1: Absolutely. Right. And typically, bad things often happen. Right. Especially for the United States, which is a global power with global interests. Right. Having that degree of realism, that degree of pessimism is important. You don't want to be overly optimistic, and I think that that was a big part of what happened with certain people in the Bush administration around Iraq. Was they became overly optimistic? Mm-hmm. They were not pessimistic enough. They were willing to overlook data that supported some more pessimistic right. interpretations of things. Okay, bring it all around uh, to
0: well. But let's stand. So you want to stay? It's sure. you Want to bring it back to the philosophical thing? One of the arguments that the realists often make is that states are rational actors that always act in their self-interest. And this is question-begging to me, right? Because the if you're the head of the, for the sake of clarity, it's called an evil regime, and you're in power in the evil regime, it is in your individual rational self-interest to perpetuate the longevity of the regime because you get all the perks and and whatnot from it. That's not the nation thinking in some anthropomorphic way. It is a set of actors thinking in their own self-interest. And the definition of self-interest changes from country to country, from culture to culture. I mean, there's a certain sort of quasi sort of weak T Marxist analysis that says conservative voters in America are idiots because they're not voting in their own economic self-interest. But that's more question-begging because it presupposes that the things that voters should only care about is their economic self-interest as defined by a set of policies that a certain number of people want to do. Some people actually care about abortion or care about religious freedom. Those are perfectly legitimate things to care about. If you're the Iranian regime and you think it is your mission from God to be the regional hegemon, mission from God or mission from history or culture or whatever... You can make a really coherent case that that's not in their self-interest. They look at look at Switzerland; they they stay within their borders. They're richer than Cretius. They're having a great time. It's a nice place to live. Be Switzerland, right? That's a rational argument. But they're like, well, no, no. But it's our destiny. It's our culture. This is the things. And so the realists, when they when they make these arguments about rational self-interest and and all the rest, they are assuming all sorts of things. All sorts of ideological positions in other nations as being—it's um, a circular thing, right? The, the perpetuating our way of life is in our self-interest, and so therefore that's our rational self-interest. But in fact, the fact of the matter, it may not be in their actual self-interest from a God's eye point of view. But the realist sort of—it is in a, the pessimism point is a good one. It works from the assumption that the the status quo is the natural condition of things, which would have been a really nutty argument to make about Iran in 1978, right? Change happens for all sorts of reasons. Why was the Shah's regime less reflective of the rational self-interest of Iran than the Ayatollah's regime? And so I don't know where I got on this, but it's just, it's one of these things that vexes me when we talk about these things. And it's, it's that assumption that drives me more crazy about, about so-called realism than anything Yeah,
1: else. Look, I, I completely agree with you. And, and let's, let, let's uh-huh. bring it back around to Iran. Um, you're absolutely right that cultures have different goals, different objectives. Collective Collectives of people can have mm-hmm. different goals and can prioritize one thing or another. One of the problems that we've got with, yes, uh, groups of people here in Washington, the United States generally, academics, is they often define interests and then mirror image other societies, right? right so they assume right. that other societies' goals is the set of goals that they have themselves, mm-hmm. right? Not recognizing that, yes, other societies may have very different goals, right? And again, the, the goals that they tend to have tend to be very economic materialist goals, right. right? Whereas there are countries out there for whom, you know, they may or may not want to be rich, but the question is really just what's the priority, Right? And it may be, sure, we'd love to be rich, but there's this other thing right. that matters to us a hundred times more. Right? Right. Second point, as you're also pointing out, John, one of the biggest issues out there is domestic politics. Right? So uh, I wrote a book a number of years ago about Iran called The Persian Puzzle. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Good which, book. That, that book I wrote.
1: Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. A lot of people seem to like it because a lot of what I did in it was talk about the domestic politics of both the United States and Iran and then the interaction of the two. Mm-hmm. Right. And my whole point was, look... You can't really understand the interaction. The interaction doesn't make a lot of strategic sense if you regard these two countries as nothing but black boxes that are thinking purely strategically. Nothing that happened historically really makes a lot of sense. It's all ultimately explained by their domestic politics and plus these cultural elements Mm -hmm. as well. I think you're absolutely right, but sorted through their domestic politics and different groups espousing positions and then playing that out in foreign policy worlds right and i think a lot as that's one of the reasons why i started my lengthy discussion about what's going on by talking about the domestic politics here and the domestic politics there because the truth is you know at a purely strategic level if you were you know some martian who did start from the assumption that what people want is just kind of general security and economic material uh prosperity then what Rouhani and uh, Zarif are arguing for is the only sensible right. argument. And yet they've lost. Right. Right. They've lost to this group of hardliners. And again, you know, it is worth noting that a lot of other Iranians seem to agree with that. I think mostly because, as we pointed out, they are so desperate. They are so poor. They are so unhappy. Right. But at the end of the day, they're not the ones winning the argument. Now, you asked me about uh, the that, opposition. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I think is a great point. And that's another one where That was, in many ways, the Iranian people kind of saying, enough of this, right? We don't believe in the ideology so much. That no longer is our highest priority. Um, We are so poor. We are so desperate. We are so unhappy that we really do want a regime that focuses much more on our basic well-being. And, of course, it was crushed. And my feeling at the time was... I didn't think that the what was called the Green Revolution—that's what mm-hmm. we're talking about in two thousand nine. I didn't think that that was likely to succeed because the regime had complete control over the instruments of power of force, you know. And uh, Theda Scotchpole, a great scholar at Harvard, you know, the the most important work that she's done on revolutions, and it's it's some of the most important work ever done on revolutions, is demonstrating that regimes only fail, revolutions only succeed when the regime loses the capacity or the will to use force, Mm -hmm. right? And it was very clear that the Iranian regime had lost neither. And we continue to see that at the time. That said, I was incredibly critical of the Obama administration at the time. I was arguing with friends of mine, longtime colleagues of mine in the Obama administration at the time, because my feeling was, you had to be supportive. We had to be publicly supportive of them. And it was interesting. It goes back to this, this larger argument about the nuclear deal. What I consistently heard from these people was, we don't want to say a word about it. And this is 2009. Obama's just come into power. We're six years from the nuclear deal. We're, we want the nuclear deal. And we're afraid if we say anything in support of the Green Revolution, the regime will not talk to us about the nuclear deal and my feeling was and i think it was clearly justified was the nuclear deal's done mm-hmm. right in the face of this uprising this regime is going to crack down they're going to lock horns right they are going to you know band together and they're not going to make a deal with anyone in you know for years after this so Nice idea. Wish it could have worked. It's done for now. So there's no reason not to support these people. And at the end of the day, we want to be on the right side of history. Right. Right. This is an odious regime. I'm not a fan of, you know, making a major effort for regime change now. I think that it would be counterproductive. That said, I absolutely believe that Iran would be better off without this regime. The Middle East would be better without this regime. The United States would be better off without this regime. The world would be better off. This is an odious, repressive regime. Uh, It is aggressive. It is destabilizing. Everyone would be better off with it gone. But as you pointed out beforehand... That will be very hard to do. Right. Right. So on the one hand, again, we want to be on the right side of history. Whenever there is a moment we want to say this regime is not serving the interests of its own people. It is hurting everyone else around it. It would be better if it were gone. Right. And we can only support Iranians who are seeking change peacefully. Right. At the same time, you know this idea that we needed to sacrifice that for this nuclear deal, which clearly was off the table at that moment in time, and as I said, it took us six years and very powerful sanctions to get them back around to it. Again, I think that was just a miscalculation on Obama's part. But again, it did speak to this point, which is probably you know, – we've been circling around it, but it's probably worth putting right on the table, which is Obama was absolutely determined – to get this deal, right. and I think that it's an important thing to keep in mind as we think about Iran. Right? Uh, I worked for President Clinton. I was Clinton's last Persian Gulf director at the NSC. He tried mightily to get a rapprochement with Iran, didn't work. Killed by the hardliners. Barack Obama went, you know, twice as far, three times. I don't know how you even calculate it. Ten times mm-hmm. as far as Bill Clinton did. He pulled out all the stops. The Iran. We'll probably never have another American president so desirous of a rapprochement with them, so willing to accommodate their needs, desires, aspirations, so willing to compromise on American interests to get this rapprochement, and yet they turned him down too. Right, That was the whole plan for the nuclear uh, deal was it was going to be the start of this wider rapprochement. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is probably something that Rouhani and Zarif would have at least entertained. But they were absolutely cut off at the knees by the supreme leader and the hardliners who said, no way. We'll do the nuclear deal. That's it. It's a transactional deal. The United States remains our enemy and we are going to try to hurt them, continue to hurt them everywhere we can. Right. And we saw a much more aggressive Iranian policy regionally after the nuclear deal.
0: Speaking of the regional part, a year or so ago, I got a big, you know, I get a lot of um, academic books because the nature of my line of work. And there was a big book, looked like an interesting book. I'm not criticizing the book, but the title was something like The Middle East Conflict. And it was entirely about the Israel-Palestine issue. And and it was happening at a moment, I th- like when chemical weapons were being dropped, you know, barrel bombs were being dropped in Syria, Yemen was being torn apart. It seems like, you know, how much credit you want to give Trump for this or not, or it just happened on his watch or what contingency, I don't, I don't know. I'll leave that to historians. But th- my point is that this always used to drive me crazy, which was this notion which was a big feature of the bubble in Washington, that all problems with the Middle East get solved when you solve the Israel-Palestinian issue. And it was so obvious to me for so long that so many of the Arab regimes were using the Palestinians sort of the way Hitler used the Sudeten Germans, right? It was a way to sort of marshal nationalist sentiment, of to sort of keep your eyes off of your own domestic dysfunction, you know, you had the end of World War II. There were millions upon millions of refugees all around the world. They all f- settled in wherever they were. But between the, the the permanent bureaucracy in the UN, which was in service to the various Middle East regimes, and the Middle East regimes themselves, they've kept Palestinians in refugee camps for three generations because they want to keep them alive as political issues. Right now. This is not to say... I'm not trying to bash the Palestinians. They've got obvious historical grievances against Israelis. Israelis have historical grievances against them. They all have historical grievances against their leaders and other regimes. But it does feel like this idea of looking through the pinhole of that conflict no longer passes muster with anybody about understanding the Middle East. And that, that I think, is a good thing. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek a solution to the Israel-Palestinian issue, but for decades, magazines and newspapers would talk about the Middle East peace plan as if, if you could work out you know, control of Gaza and the West Bank, there would be peace in the Middle East. That has nothing to do with how Saudis and Iranians look at each other or any of that kind of stuff. Do you th- First of all, do you think that's right? And second of all, where do you think that's going?
1: Yeah. I think you are absolutely correct that the the importance of the Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian issue has declined enormously in the region, um, and is being eclipsed by, in particular, the yeah, if you want to call it the Iranian-Saudi or the Sunni-Shia, right? It goes by a whole variety sure. of different names. It's all the same problem. Um, then you've got you know a bunch of sub-conflicts within it, right? You've got this. Bizarre fight between the Saudis and the UAE with the Qataris and the Turks, right? right? You've got other, you know, conflicts among different countries about very specific issues. So there's a lot going on in the region. But you're right that a big part of that has been the decline of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, right? And, And part of that has been because of things that have happened between the Israelis and the Arabs. Some of it, things like the peace treaty with Egypt, the peace treaty with Jordan, which removed two of the most important Arab states that, you know, had a, a, you know, a, a clear clash with the Israelis. They're now both very happy with their peace deal, so they're not agitating right. for, to make Israel the bad guy, right? You've, and simultaneously, you've had other states that are now much more frightened by Iran, than they are frightened by Israel, than they were ever frightened by Israel. Right. And again, a lot of that does go back, Jonah, to the point that we were t- you and I have been talking about in terms of the domestic politics of these countries. Again, you can't really understand their foreign policies without first understanding their domestic politics, where for a lot of these countries, their internal problems are becoming really difficult for them to manage. That's why we saw the Arab Spring. Right. in 2011. Right, this was an outbreak all across the region of Arabs saying, we are sick and tired of this, right? We are sick and tired of being left in the dust economically. We want our pol- politicians, our leaders to do something about that. They won't, right? So then by God, we got to do something about them. By the way, there's also this thing called globalization, right, right? Which half the Arab world loves and wants more of and the other half hates and wants none of, right? So you you had all of these internal problems. And in that, Israel really was not the threat, mm-hmm. right? Israel doesn't get into internal Arab politics, you know, it, certainly not nearly as much as it once did. The street isn't less focused on that. Arab, average Arabs are much more focused on their own economic grievances, et cetera. But there's also this perception that the Iranians are able, right. right? The Israelis never were trying to overthrow these regimes the way that the Iranians absolutely are. And the Iranians have had some successes, right? right? And so this is deeply frightening to the Arab regimes. And so when they look out at the world, they see an Iran that likes to get involved in their domestic politics and likes to make things worse and is trying to start revolutions all across the Middle East, right? That is incredibly frightening to them. Israel, on the other hand, isn't trying to do that, any of that stuff to any of them. And what's more, Israel shares their hatred and fear of Iran. Right. So, you know, as I think lots of people are recognizing, you have this tacit alliance, which is growing between them. All that said, I think it's important to caveat it by saying that, you know, the Israelis, God bless them, you talk to them, they all believe that the Palestinian issue is dead yeah. and they don't have to do anything about it. And all I can tell you, you know, we don't know. Well, proof of the pudding is in the eating. But when I talk to Arab leaders, which I do on a regular basis, I am struck by how consistently they will say, look, you Americans have to make the Israelis understand this. We do want this tacit alliance with them. We want it deeper. We want to do more with Israel. But the Israelis have to understand that there is a ceiling on what we're going to be able to do unless they find some kind of a solution to the Palestinian problem, because that is still a huge motivating force for our people. Right. And because we are so afraid of this unhappiness in our people, we can only risk pushing them so far on right. the Palestinian issue.
0: Right, Which does just underscore my point about realism and national interest, um, Aren't necessarily about economic issues, right? I mean, why right. why the you know uh, Egyptian street should care about the Palestinians rather than their job prospects as a moral issue? I get it, right? right? You know, or as a cultural issue, I get it, but it's not it's not rational economic self interest, right? Right. Um, someone once told me that as a generalization, the Arab street doesn't like America, but the regimes do, and in Iran. The Iranian street likes America, but the regime doesn't. Is that basically true? And does it apply to Israel too?
1: Yeah, I and mean, look, it's a gross generalization, sure, sure, but sure. as far as gross generalizations go, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, there certainly with Iran, which we've been talking about mostly on the podcast, um, there's a certain nostalgia for the United States. There's a certain there's a certain nostalgia for the Shah, right? Which is very striking. There are mm-hmm. a lot of younger Iranians born mostly after the Shah's demise, right, but who kind of see that era as almost a halcyon era just because they're so miserable right now living under the Islamic Republic. And they do know that the United States was the great ally of the Shah. They know it because the regime is saying it all of the time, right? right? But they take it in a very different way. In addition, you know, the United States, you know, we are the world. We are the land of Disneyland and Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, the Internet and Mm -hmm. Apple and all that kind of stuff. Which they want, right? right? Which they absolutely want. And they want it culturally and they want it materially. They want it in all those different senses, right? So there is this, this impression among a lot of Iranians that, you know, what we want is embodied by the United States of America. And that's all great. And then the last piece, which is, you know, wrapped up in all of this is, and we're really sick of this regime. Yeah. And we really don't like this regime. And this regime keeps defining the United States as its polar opposite. Right, right. And so if we hate this regime and the United States is its polar opposite, we must love the United States. Right, right. By the transitive property. Right,
0: right. In domestic politics, that's negative polarization, right? Where right. you hate Republican, You're a Democrat because you hate Republicans and vice versa. And someone – I once met a guy who was a writer's or AP reporter who spent time in Iran. He told me that it's interesting that you can have – a long conversation with an Egyptian intellectual and talk about Kant or Hegel or Wittgenstein or whatever, and it would just sail right over their heads, just don't know anything about it. You talk to a Persian, and they'll argue with you about how you've completely misinterpreted you know, the phenomenology of the spirit or something like that. that the, the Persians are much more plugged in to Western currents of thought than the Arab intellectual class, which for whatever reason, isn't. Is that true? I always thought it was fascinating. I just don't know if it's true.
1: I mean, look, you know, I, I will start by saying that I know a, quite a few Arab intellectuals who I uh-huh. think are just first-rate thinkers, first-rate minds. Um, I'll, I'll take the question in a different way, which uh-huh. is to say, again, I think to a certain extent, a lot of this does come back to that educational piece, right, where the, the Arab educational system is much more, as a point that I made just in passing, I'll develop it a little bit more, Arab education, especially in the kind of state-run schools, um, which, by the way, come from the Quranic tradition. So this is not about Islam, but it is about how Islam came to be taught Mm -hmm. in the last several centuries right under the Ottomans and a variety of other reasons. Knowledge became something that you ingest it. Right. And you and the goal of a school was to give you the knowledge. Your job as a student was simply to take in as much of the knowledge as you possibly could. Sort of
0: a culture of memorization.
1: Absolutely. Right. right? That's it. And that's that's the yeah, the rote memorization is the most obvious example of that. But you just kind of see it across the board in mm-hmm. terms of the, you know, there are. Kind of cultural stigmas attached to people trying to come up with new ideas, create new knowledge, new interpretations. Um, there, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but but most of the schools of Islamic thought frown very heavily on any interpretation. And again, it's less about the the religion; it's much more about how that then filters down mm-hmm. into general ideas about knowledge and, and people's relationship to it. Um, Persian culture is different. The, the Iranian educational system is different mm-hmm. in that sense. It has less of it. Um, some scholars, uh, you know, th- these are theories, but they're worth putting out there. Some scholars have attributed it to Shia Islam, mm-hmm. which believes much more in the idea of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Now, in Shia Islam... Only certain people can do the interpreting. You have to be trained to do it. You have to be a mushtahid, someone who is allowed to interpret. Um, But nevertheless, there is this idea that people can do it themselves as opposed to this is something that's simply revealed by God and God's prophet, and it's our job to simply do whatever he said. And that also does seem to infuse Iranian schooling. And so there's somewhat more critical thought, right?
0: See, I think one of the reasons I think that's really, really interesting is I wrote this book about the suicide of the West about you know where capitalism comes from and where all this stuff comes from, and one of the core points was that it, it that innovation was frowned upon by every regime in the world for thousands of years, and you know in Western Europe it was literally a sin, the sin of curitas of questioning the established order. The Arab world was way ahead of us for a long time. the The Chinese civilization had printing presses and ocean spanning ships long before the West did but the second innovation sort of got out of the seemed threatened to get out of the cage the powers that be clamped down and killed it they brought home the fleet they crushed the steel mills they you know uh, got they they chained up the printing presses because innovation by its very nature threatens the established order and for just quirky weird reasons innovation was allowed to run wild in England and the Netherlands and that's what started up capitalism and democracy and all of the rest. And so it's it's just to me it's interesting that it's that that's actually a very normal phenomenon to sort of say to people do not question the established order. You know, innovation is bad, interpretation is bad, and all the rest. And so there are people who think that Protestantism. You know, I, I think the soft versions of that theory are valuable. That Protestantism, by taking out the middleman in your relations with God, and allowed you to have a personal relationship with God that you got from a text, from a, from reading a text yourself, rather than having an inter- intermediary read it for you, is one of the things that unleashed all of that. I mean, it can go too far, right. but um, again, monocausal explanations are bad. But it's really, really kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, just on that, you know, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh-huh. um, apparently his favorite. His favorite quote, um, he was once asked this, and he Uh said this this was his favorite quote, and it's a brilliant quote. He said, um, the central conservative truth is that it is culture, not politics, that determines the success of a society. But the central liberal truth is that politics can change culture and save it from itself. Now, absolutely true. What he's getting at is this long term relationship between politics and culture, which is exactly what you're talking about as well, where the regimes feel threatened by it. And so they clamp down and that then seeps into the culture. Right. Uh, the one of the uh, Edward Said, a name many of your listeners, I think, will probably curse the moment they hear sure, it. Some, uh, some will, yeah. but Edward Said, his theory, and I think there may be quite some validity to it. It's just not been proven; it's just speculation. But his argument was that it was the Ottomans who imposed mm-hmm. this concept of education and learning, using different um, Islamic tenets to justify what they were doing, but to try to snuff out innovation and therefore rebellion in the Arab world, which mm. were some of its most important provinces. His whole argument is that it was the centuries of experience under the Ottomans mm. trying to crush that spirit of innovation that changes the Arab culture of, you know, their age of enlightenment, you know, yeah, the yeah. period from the birth of Islam into the Middle Ages, when as you pointed out, they are the great, you know, idea factory of the world, right? right? It, that's what transforms it. Into this world where uh, creative thought is frowned upon, where it is, you know, you you ingest knowledge, you don't create it. Right. And so, again, you know, Moynihan was absolutely right in that quote. The problem is the converse of it was was also true. Right. That politics can corrupt culture and make it worse and make it make it, you know, uh, fail on behalf of its people. Yeah,
0: It's sort of like you'll meet. I mean, I haven't been to Russia, but I have friends who spent a lot of time there and. If you're waiting a long time on a line for something, which I think still happens quite a bit in Russia, not as much as it used to, um, someone will say it's all because of the Mongols. (laughs) um,
1: You hear that in Baghdad too, by the way. I bet.
0: Yeah. And there's probably some truth to it, you know, some. Anyway, um, thank you for coming on. Uh,
1: This was fun. Hope you'll come back. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I will absolutely come back. Great.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this was uh, Kenneth Pollack. His latest book is?
1: Armies of Sand, the Past, Present, and Future of Arab Military Effectiveness. Boom. There you go.
0: Okay. So Ken has left the building. And
2: uh, what did you think of all that? I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) Uh, Instead, I'm going to take the opportunity to point out two things that you said that were interesting to me. Uh Uh-oh. Uh, the first of them being when you said something, you started saying something about going to war with North Korea. Mm-hmm. You, sa- you started out saying North Duck. That was the first thing out of your mouth. Uh-huh. And then you hastily corrected yourself and said North Korea. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering, so the only possible word you could have been saying or trying to say was North Dakota. Uh-huh. Why on earth was invading North Dakota on your mind? Now he's
0: being naive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember North Dakota going through my mind and correcting myself, but... Um...
2: Oh, it happened. And I'll, I'll play the audio here, and it will be beyond a, a shadow of a doubt.
0: If you could persuade me that we could declare war on North, North Korea, on North, North Korea... I, I take your word for it. Uh I don't have any great animosity towards North Dakota. in, in the hierarchy of states I dislike, North Dakota is not is does not rank very high. Um
2: Where what is what states do you dislike? What are the what's the number one? Um Well
0: this is gonna get me in trouble with some listener somewhere, right? Um
2: <sighs> Well, I, you're in the opinion business. I'm sure you're true. used to that by now. That's true.
0: Um uh let's see. I used to play this game with my friends where we would it's a great bar conversation. What is the prettiest state that and as met and the the way the metric of determining what is the prettiest state is the state that you would want most to be a traveling salesman in for at least one year mm-hmm. in terms of just sort of scenery and beauty and all that kind of stuff and um by that metric. Actually, North Dakota doesn't stand up too well. <laughs> um, I mean, it's got some good stuff. I've driven across it many times. You, know, you got
2: pulled over. Oh, no, that was in South Dakota. Never mind.
0: Yeah. Um, the western parts of a lot of those states are – there's some people who just love flat scenery. You mm-hmm. know. One, you know, Ben Sass likes to talk glowingly about the beauty of monotonously flat land um, with corn as far as the eye can see. I think a little of that goes a long way, personally. I think mountains are better. I think climate matters a lot. But no, I, 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 don't, I don't think I have any great animosity towards North Dakota. I really dislike a lot of the culture of, of Vermont. Okay. And I remember driving from Vermont into New Hampshire once, and it almost felt like I was going through the Brandenburg Gate. <laughs> um, there's Except a,
2: for the guns. Yeah, but there's a, there's a
0: weird... There's something wonderful about the flinty Yankee spirit that becomes kind of awful when it's merged with sort of the progressive busybodiness. <laughs> and I, I remember once we were driving, my wife and I were driving, the baby was one years old, and we had Cosmo the Wonder Dog, our previous dog. And we pulled into some state park, and we didn't go – we drove past the ranger station, uh-huh. some place to park out of the way. And these two sort of Bob and Ray guys in their, their sort of uh, almost like a country club t-shirts, uh, you know, Lacoste shirts and in their golf cart came up to us and just read us the riot act about like we were scofflaws and horrible people and all of this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in Vermont because a lot of the worst people from Massachusetts have moved there. <laughs> um, but uh, – And, you know, I did that big piece for a cover story for National Review about Vermont when Howard Dean was leading in the polls and we put this great bucolic picture of Vermont on the cover and then we just put the word hell on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Burlington, Burlington, first of all, Burlington, Vermont gave us Bernie Sanders. Burlington, Vermont is a lovely bucolic town run by the kind of reds that you find in you know college town Starbucks, you know I just I don't know I, I I got I got major problems with Vermont. Love New Hampshire, love everything about New Hampshire, but I, I have no great. I was in, I was in Fargo this summer and I loved it. I thought it was really great.
2: So I I have no great explanation for you about that. Okay. What is your second question? This, this is something that has been bothering me for a while. You have been saying that the medieval sin of innovation uh-huh. is curitas. Uh-huh.
0: One of the core points was that, it, it, that innovation was frowned upon by every regime in the world for thousands of years. And, you know, in Western Europe, it was literally a sin, the sin of curitas, of questioning the established order.
2: Not curitas. It what is, is it? It's
0: curiositas.
2: Oh, Jesus. Okay. I apologize. Uh, curio- curitas has no, I don't think it has any meaning in Latin. Okay, but you've been saying this in speeches too, and I've been meaning to correct you. But now I've figured doing publicly is the best way to to drill it into your skull that it needs to be changed.
0: Okay, I'm I'm trying to remember how we spelled it in the book. And
2: I did. It was definitely spelled correctly in the book. Okay. Okay.
0: So, I, frankly, the way I see it is this is. A self-owned, because you're admitting your failure to correct me much, much earlier. <laughs> it
2: just keep it kept escaping my mind because I'm no, I'm rarely rarely at these when I'm in the same room as you when you're giving a speech. It's not like I can rush up to you and then say, Jonah, no, but you forgot, Karytas.
0: I, I I think I can say without fear of correction that we spend an enormous amount of time together and there were opportunities to tell me before this podcast
2: <laughs> well i I, cho- I have to choose my battles correctly
0: um are you are you giddy that game of thrones is over
2: look i <laughs> i became a, an anti game of thrones reactionary simply because you your argument about liberals being the aggressors in the culture war game of thrones fans were the aggressors in the pop culture war it was being forced on me i would have happily conducted my pop culture life without without saying anything about the show if I wasn't constantly f- forced into my pathway oh you, have you heard of this thing called Game of Thrones oh yeah you should watch Game of Thrones you don't watch Game of Thrones how can you not watch Game of Thrones so fair fair. I just didn't that 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 radicalized me and now but now that it's over I I don't really feel like I could if I felt like it engage in schadenfreude about how unhappy people seem to be at how it, how it ended but I don't I don't have to do that. I don't really feel I just I'm I'm content to let it fade into 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 oblivion. That's fine with me.
0: So you're basically like the Persian street when, you know, America must be great if the regime says it's the great Satan. You feel like if everyone's saying it's so great, you have to think it's awful. That's negative partisanship. Right. That's sort of where I,
2: make no, I make no claims about its quality. I just don't want to have to make a claim about That's, it at all. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, there, is, there is room for apathy, and, and even in this modern age of hot takes. And I reserve my right to it.
0: Switching gears, we didn't have time to do a post-show analysis of um, the Joe Sternberg uh, Baby Boomers Suck. Yeah, episode. What do you think of that? Since since you are the host of your own podcast called The Young Americans, you do have some skin in this game,
2: right? I am I am deeply torn about this because I, I see evidence, and maybe it's just evidence of my peers who are uh, urban dwelling, uh, early stage professional millennials who display behaviors that are not exactly. Uh, they're not embodiments of the Protestant work ethic, shall we say? Uh-huh. Uh, which I, I mean, as as a Catholic, I'm not, It's the only aspect of being Protestant that I would that I would seek to uh, emulate myself. But at the same time, I get many of his points about how Baby Boomers could have done things and and uh, harmed their the what they're passing on to the future. So I'm much more. I'm much more. Um, wishy-washy about this issue than you would expect me to be. And I'm also not sure I mean he's uh, the the author being born in 1982 I I feel I have very little in common with him despite being I mean he's more of a late Gen Xer frankly. And this is one of the issues I have with the generational grouping is that like someone born in 19 by by this definition someone born in 1980 is supposed to have something more in common with me than someone born in 1979 right so.
0: no that's that's ludicrous i mean the i'm still i'm i'm actually writing a column about this where i'm somewhat softening on my opposition to generational stereotyping but i still dislike it a great deal and it seems to me that the abstract, you know, you're in this cohort thing, you're born between these two dates, is so much less meaningful than, like, whether you grew up in a world where it was taken as a given that you'd have an an iPhone or some device like that in your house right. or not. Which right, which
2: is something that can also be determined. So I'm the youngest in my family. And so I was basically raised in the same way that my all of my older siblings were, who were much older than I am. But if I had been the oldest in my family, I would have... I, I things would have been different about my upbringing, probably. Sure. Um, just because the like brunt of the parenting that was done in my in my lifetime would have been at a later period rather than an earlier one.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, so I I grew up with computer a computer in the house in my late high school years, but when I went to college, you know, my freshman year, you had to go to the computer room to use a computer, and then and print things out there and that kind of stuff. There was no internet, and then by Sophomore junior year, it was a big deal. I got my my Apple two E or whatever it was. You know, one of the early apples. And there's some readers listeners going to say that wasn't the two E, whatever. Fine, but it was you know one of those early Macs. And that life experience is so alien to somebody who was even five years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And to so to say that all Gen Xers share these things. I mean, there are things that I think are true, like shared common culture, kind of issues, and all of the rest, but. That was my, that's, and I, I don't want to dwell on it because I, 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 I pressed it as much as I could politely with Sternberg about all of this. But, you know, there is a sense in which talking about how the baby boomers screwed everything up misses the fact that there were baby boomers on either side of every one of the public policy issues that he's talking about. Right. Um, and yeah, you can talk about how there was some overlapping consensus about how to use government and markets, and I think that point is, is perfectly fine. But it just seems to me it's much more illuminating to use a different prism than this generational stuff when you're talking about this because it's just it it glosses over so many things and it's and it's weird this is the second guy in a year from the wall street journal editorial page who's coming out with like sort of a generational analysis book and i just wonder what's in the water over there but you know and that's the other thing is if we had more time i was going to like or if i was if i knew the guy better i was going to grill them about why the journal has just been so crappy towards me personally. But that's that's another, that's
2: another a topic for another day. Um, if you're wondering what's in the water, I think the answer is probably rats. Apparently rats have taken over New York City. I saw something on, on the Twitters about that. Um, yeah.
0: My dad always, there was always this statistic that would pop up from time to time about how there's, th- and it turns out not to be true. Some guy did a study recently. Um, but well. my entire life, they said there were like three rats for every New Yorker. And and my dad would always say, where are my three
2: rats? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Oh, last. Well, maybe last. I don't know. Um, So I have on on my way to work last week, I walked by someone who, while walking, was reading a copy of uh, Milton and Rose Friedman's Free to Choose. Uh I thought this was interesting. Uh Even weirder was this week on the, the same person as I was. Walking to work, I saw he the, this person was reading Dune Messiah. So with those two data points, I decided that there's like a hundred percent chance that this person is a remnant listener. Uh-huh. And saw this person again yesterday. Determined, yes, remnant listener. You asked him, yes. Okay.
0: So what's what's sad about this. First of all, that's great, and you I, I like your deductive reasoning.
2: Um, <laughs> well, I mean, what are the what are the chances that someone reading those two books does not listen to this podcast? Yeah, and if if
0: on the third time you met them, they were reading Abducted by Bigfoot, <laughs> then it would be kind of obvious. Yes. But um, uh, it would have been weird that they weren't Remnantless,
2: Right. Have you heard of this podcast?
0: <laughs> um, but uh, it's a shame it was a dude uh, just because that would have been a great meet-cute story if it was a, you know attractive young lady.
2: <sighs> yeah. Age-appropriate. Well, someday.
0: Someday. <laughs> um, I used to have, back when I was single... I used to have sort of daydreaming, sort of fantasies about because there were all these movies where people meet people on planes, and I was always like, you know, I'm going to sit next to some woman who's reading a copy of the Public Interest or you know, <laughs> or an anthology of X Men comics or something like that. It's like the one, but it turned out not. That's not how it worked. So, all right. So this uh, we got. We have an exciting podcast. So, like, one of the reasons why I wanted to stack up all of these wonk podcasts because we've done a few in a row now, right? We did. The millennial thing, which was pretty wonky. We did this, which was pretty wonky. The week
2: of the think tank presidents last we week. We had two think tank
0: presidents back to back. And uh, since Ethan Nicole has not kept it secret, uh, next week, we are it's next week, right? Right. We are going to record a podcast with the author of a book who has an incendiary thesis, which is that bears want to kill you. And as someone who's been railing against bear propaganda for years... Uh, Thanks largely to the influence of my Alaskan wife. I'm very much looking forward to that podcast, so stay tuned for that. Funny story is, Pa, John Podoritz, I have this group text with Pod, Rob Long, and Scott Emmergut, the producer over at Ricochet, and... The glop text. The glop text. And last night, Pod texted me the Amazon page for the Bears Want to Kill You book and says, we should do a whole glop just on this book. And I was like, dude, I've already booked them for my podcast. And... I guess he was kind of joking when he was saying it, oh. <laughs> and, and, and he was like, seriously? But yes, yeah, seriously, I'm very much looking forward to it. And uh, for listeners who don't know, you know, I've tried very hard uh, not to talk about the new venture that I'm doing with Steve Hayes and some other folks, but June 1 is the official date where I will no longer be a senior editor at National Review. I'm going to stay a fellow over the National Review Institute, but uh, starting June 1, I am a sort of a full-time guy building up this... Uh, this new media company, and it's exciting. And the podcast will continue, hopefully under the name The Remnant, and the G-File will continue, hopefully under the name The G-File. Some of these things have got to be worked out. It gets a little technical. And we're going to have some exciting stuff for people to, uh, if they're interested and if they're looking for jobs, if they're looking to invest, if they're looking to uh, sign up for the the whole shebang. Uh, we'll have more information about all of that. But everyone's been really supportive, and it's it's a bittersweet thing for me because I love National Review so much. But you know,
2: that's it's a bittersweet symphony. That's life. There you go.
0: So beyond that, uh, please keep the uh, the chatter going on on Twitter. It's in some ways it's more important than ever. Please keep the reviews coming, the downloads coming, and um, uh, that's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you wants back us. as a bully in his jackets so don't take it personally um, I'm glad that he's so up for this yeah So alright